Welcome, and if you're new to our church, I want to introduce myself. I'm Ricky. I'm honored to be the lead pastor here at Fort Caroline, and we are so glad that you are connecting with us in person or online. So thank you for being with us. Let us know that you're here. You can leave a comment on our social media channel or uh, go to fcbc.life, and there's a Let's Connect card. Just click on that and let us know that you're here. We are so glad that you're connecting. We're a multi-generational church, and we love helping people in this community reach higher for the best life that God has for them. And uh, we're blessed to have the partnership of so many people that make this such a wonderful church. In fact, today, uh, six people are becoming official members of Fort Caroline Baptist Church. They said, we want to join this church in what God is doing here. Uh, last week, uh, two senior adults in our church came up to me and, and spoke to me, and we talked, and they, they said, we love this church, and we love what God is doing, and they made a financial contribution to what God is doing in the life of this church. Isn't that awesome, just to see people of all ages working together to help people in this community in real and practical ways? By the way, if you're a senior adult and you're looking for good fellowship just to meet some new friends and to enjoy some time together, our church has a Christmas banquet coming up uh, sponsored by our senior adult ministry. And uh, you can call the office if you'd like to purchase tickets. Or if you know who Judy Miller is, uh, or if you know who Mary Metzler is, or Jim Bryant, you can talk to them and they'll give you tickets or sell you tickets. Otherwise, just let us know in the office. We would love for you to join this great event coming up in December. You know... I took my daughter, Casey, uh, a week ago to see the latest James Bond movie. We, we just had a, a night out, and, and as we were leaving the theater, I said, well, tell me what you thought of the movie. And she said, I really liked it. She said, but I, I think there were some plot points I missed because I haven't watched all the others. And I said, yeah, you know, I think you're right. If, if you haven't seen all the other James Bond movies with, with Daniel Craig, then perhaps you, you missed some of those uh, characters and some of the events in the, the backstory. You see, in that movie, there's the story, but there's also the backstory. And sometimes that's what's important, is knowing the backstory. And you know, I say that because it's also true of a passage of Scripture that we're going to read today, where Jesus one time spoke of a parable. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there's the story of the Good Samaritan. And so many people in our culture are familiar with the story. But as they say, familiarity breeds contempt. So often we're so familiar with the story that we just have a surface level understanding and we really miss the message that Jesus was communicating. In order to understand the real story of the Good Samaritan, you've got to understand the backstory. And so that's what I want to do today is take you to uh, the Gospel of Luke Luke chapter 10, and we're going to begin with verse 25 as we think about the story of the Good Samaritan. Our culture loves this story. There are dozens of Good Samaritan hospitals in America. There are hundreds of Good Samaritan ministries and Good Samaritan missions and Good Samaritan feeding banks and Good Samaritan charities. We love the story of the Good Samaritan. We even have in America Good Samaritan laws, which means that you're not responsible if you're trying to help a person and maybe something goes wrong, that we're not going to penalize you because you were being a good Samaritan. And if you ask the average person what's the moral of the story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan, it is simply go out and be nice to strangers. That's certainly a part of the story, but if that's all you understand, you've really missed the message Jesus was communicating. 
There's a primary message that perhaps someone here today needs to hear because you are not a follower of Jesus. And you're wondering, what does it take for a person to go to heaven? What does it take for a person to know that they can inherit eternal life when they die? This is the story for you. Because so often the answer to that question is wrong. We have all the wrong answers. And Jesus wants to help us see the real answer. So the story is about salvation. But then there's a secondary application to those of us who actually are followers of Jesus. And it's about service. What do saved people do and how do they live? So today I want to read through this story and then I want to come back and just walk through it verse by verse if that's okay. But in Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy, Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. May God bless the reading of his word. There's the story, the Good Samaritan, but there's the backstory. That really is the key to understanding why Jesus told this story and how it applies to your life and to mine. The backstory, as we read it here in Luke 10, verse 25, is, And behold, a lawyer stood up. This is not a lawyer in civil law. It's not a lawyer in criminal law. This was a lawyer in the Old Testament law of Moses. This was a religious lawyer who spent his entire life studying the Old Testament and seeking to apply it to everyday life for himself and for other people. He's an expert in the Old Testament law. And you get a glimpse of his motive because the Bible says, and behold, the lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test. 
This is not a sincere dialogue. This is not a person who is humbly coming to Jesus for the answers to life's greatest questions. This is a person who is wanting to trap Jesus into making a statement that would be controversial and that would turn the crowds away from Jesus. And so he asked the question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And thankfully, Jesus is more polite than I would have been because I would have said, that's a dumb question. To get an inheritance, you don't do anything. Somebody else dies, so you get it. But this guy's wanting to work his way to heaven. He's already assuming that he can live in such a way that he can earn his way into God's good graces. And instead of answering the question, Jesus turns the tables and asks him a question. Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What does the Old Testament law of Moses say? And so verse 27, he answers by quoting two verses of Scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verses 4 and 5, and then Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. First, he quotes from Deuteronomy. He says, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. He said, I'm, I know the Shema. I know the, the, the scriptures from Deuteronomy 6. As a good, pious Jew, every morning and every evening, I recite it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He knows the verses. And so when Jesus asks him the question, what does the law say about inheriting eternal life? He says, well, love God perfectly. That's what the Bible says. And then he quotes Leviticus 19, verse 18, because he also includes, and your neighbor. Not only love God, but your neighbor as yourself. And he's correct. You remember in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is the one who said the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law. In other words, the whole law can be summarized in these two commandments. Love God perfectly. Love your neighbor perfectly. This lawyer knows his Bible. He just doesn't know himself so he's get, he gets the answers right in that regard, but notice how Jesus answers him back. Verse 28, he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Go ahead. If you're a person who loves God perfectly and loves your neighbor perfectly, you have nothing to worry about. But notice the attitude of this man's heart. Because in his heart, he's thinking, I do pretty good on this. I think I'm okay with God. I think I live up to this standard. I certainly love God. I'm religious after all. But notice it says in verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself. He knows that as a good lawyer, we need to define terms. What is the definition of is? I, I, I want to I really spell this out. So he says, in order to justify himself, he, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I'm okay with God. And I think I'm okay with my neighbor. But let's just be clear. Who's my neighbor? You see, in Jesus' day, 
the religious Jews had so narrowly defined neighbor, they only saw it as someone who was near, particularly someone who was near to them racially and religiously. If you're a fellow Jew, and if you live up to the standards of the Old Testament law like I think you should, then you're my neighbor. But if you're a Gentile, or if you're not as religious as you ought to be, even though you're a Jew like I am, you're not my neighbor, and you have no claim on my love. If you're my enemy, I don't have to love you. Let's talk about who neighbor is. So that's the reason Jesus gives the story of the Good Samaritan. I know Jesus must frustrate people who just want Jesus to blurt out an answer, black or white, but instead of just giving him an answer, he tells him a story. Tells him a story. Because this man's wanting to justify himself, excuse himself, saying, well, I love God and I love people I consider to be my neighbor, but there are certain people who aren't my neighbor, I don't love them, but I still think that's okay. So Jesus said, let me give you a story. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Everybody knew this route in Jesus' day. Still today, it's a treacherous road from the people that I've talked to who've actually gone to the Holy Land. They say it's a 17-mile journey on this narrow road with often you looking over a steep embankment. They say when you're riding on the bus, you're going, please, let's don't fall over this thing. It's a 17-mile journey, and it's about a 2,500 feet descent from up at Jerusalem down to Jericho. So it is a winding road. It is a dangerous road. It was notorious in Jesus' day for being a place where robbers would hide out in order to overtake unsuspecting travelers. They could rob them, and so Jesus tells this story. It's a fictional story with a spiritual truth. There's a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. He's beaten, bloodied, robbed, lay naked and bleeding in the ditch. Verse 31, Jesus says, Now by chance, a priest, talking about a Jewish priest, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The priest saw the man beaten, bleeding, half dead in the ditch. But rather than going and helping him, he goes on the opposite side of the road as far away from that man as he can get, and he keeps on going. Now, this is just a fictional story. Jesus doesn't tell us why he kept going. Some people like to speculate, well, perhaps the priest was thinking, I'm spiritually clean, ceremonially clean, and if I go and touch a man, I'll be unspiritually clean, I'll be ceremonially unclean, and then I won't be able to do my duties at the temple. There's a whole ritual of washings I'll have to do, and I'll miss my shift. I don't know if that's the way this guy's thinking. It's just a story. Jesus doesn't tell us. Or I'm too busy. I've got more important things to do. Or maybe the robbers are still hiding, and as soon as I kneel down to help him, they'll overtake me. I think in the context of Jesus' story, the real reason the priest doesn't help the man in the ditch is because even though he knows the verses about loving God and loving your neighbor, he betrays the reality. He does not love God, nor does he love his neighbor, despite what he claims. 
Because if he loved God, he would obey God's commands who says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he refuses to do it. Verse 32, so likewise a Levite, Jesus says in this story, when he came to the place, saw him, just like the priest, the Levite saw the man and passed by on the other side. The Levite helped in the temple and served with the priest. So if the priest is like the pastor, then the Levite's like the associate pastor. And the associate pastors often get to do the stuff the pastor doesn't want to do. It may be, maybe the, the Levite said, well, pastor didn't help. I'm not going to help either. Or if he thinks he's busy, what about me? I do all the dirty work he doesn't like to do. Or maybe I don't want to get ceremonially defiled. Or maybe I'm worried about my own life. But I think in the context of Jesus' story, the real reason the Levite sees a man in need and walks by on the other side refusing to help is because neither does he love God or his neighbor. And he refuses to get involved. Now as the lawyers listening to Jesus tell his story and perhaps the disciples are listening and other people are listening over as Jesus tells the story, maybe they're assuming, they're anticipating, they're getting ahead of Jesus, thinking that the next person who's going to come by is just a, an average, everyday Jewish person, and this is going to be the hero of the story. And Jesus shocks the lawyer. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. Now, if this were a movie, it'd be dun, dun, dun. dun. What? A Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, just like the priest saw, just like the Levites saw, when he saw him, he had compassion. He had what the religious people lacked. He had compassion. He was moved with pity. He was motivated to show mercy. Now, this is an astounding thing. This is the last person in Jesus' day you would have expected to come and help a, a poor Jewish traveler on the Jericho Road. There was such animosity between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. They despised each other. They hated each other. It was terrible. The, the reason is, is because the Samaritans were the descendants of the Assyrians who had conquered Israel 700 years earlier. And they had taken hundreds if not thousands of Jews out of Israel into captivity. And then they repopulated Israel with other people from the Assyrian Empire into Israel. And these pagans, these other people different religions, different nationalities settled in Israel. And the remnant of the Jews started marrying them. There were intermarriages, mixed marriages. They started worshiping some of their gods. There became this, this amalgamation of worshiping Yahweh, but also worshiping the pagan gods of Assyria. They even set up their own temple at Mount Gerizim, which earlier the Jews had come and destroyed. I mean, it, there was so much animosity that one of the greatest insults you could give a person who was a Jew was to call them a dog or to call them a Samaritan. You remember in John chapter 8 
when the religious leaders are so hateful towards Jesus, they say to him, you are a demon-possessed Samaritan. Now you know why they said that. It was the greatest insult they could think of. And so when Jesus says a Samaritan comes along and shows compassion on his enemy, it was an astounding thing that has been blunted by over 2,000 years of familiarity. Look at what the Samaritan does in verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So there he is. He's bandaging his wounds. He's caring for him, cleaning those wounds, getting personally involved. Puts him on his own animal, and now he walks alongside this wounded man as he takes him to an inn. Stays with him overnight and cares for him. Verse 35, it says, And the next day he took out two denarii. So this was the equivalent of two days' worth of money. Two days' salary. And he gives it to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And then he, he basically writes a blank check. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. It has been estimated that it would have only costed just a few pennies for this man to stay in this inn. But the Samaritan gives two months' worth of money. Hey, let him stay here if it takes two months for him to recuperate. And if you come into any more expenses, put that on my charge. I will pay it. This is a glimpse of lavish love. This good Samaritan is going over and above in his love for this stranger that he has helped. And when Jesus was finished with the story, he asked this probing question. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Jesus says, you're asking me, who is my neighbor? In my story, who was the neighbor? Who acted neighborly? You want to walk around limiting your love and think that's what it means to be a neighbor? Think that's the fulfillment of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself? Hey, in my story, who was the neighbor? The two jokers, that's Ricky's translation, the two religious people who knew the verses from the Bible or the one who actually put the verses in practice? And this guy knows he set a trap for Jesus by trying to test him and trick him and ensnare him in a controversy, and now he has been trapped. Because there's only one right answer to the question Jesus asked him, and he is reluctant to say it. In fact, he's so reluctant, he refuses to even use the word Samaritan. Notice how he replies, verse 37. I can almost hear him almost in a whisper. The one who showed him mercy. <laughs> he won't even say Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And there again, if this man was sincere in wanting eternal life, wanting to be right with God and his fellow men, he would have thrown himself at the feet of Jesus like the man in the temple 
And he would have cried out, be merciful to me, a sinner. I realize now, no matter what I say and how often I've gone to church and how much money I've put in the offering plate, I come to realize I don't love God perfectly because I don't love my fellow men perfectly. Who can do this, Jesus? Jesus, I've not done it, and I'm not so brash to tell you from this day forward, I'll love God 100% perfectly, and I'll love my neighbor, even my enemies, perfectly. Jesus, I can't do it. And if that had been his answer, we would have heard, and the angels of heaven rejoiced that a sinner had come to Jesus. But instead, he goes home. And we don't know how it ends. And maybe the reason we don't know how this lawyer's story ends is because Jesus is wanting to leave the story open and put yourself in this story. How will your story of life end? If you today think that you can work your way to heaven by giving money and doing good deeds, and yet you come to realize that you don't love God perfectly and you certainly don't love other people perfectly, you didn't love them perfectly in traffic on the way to church. So enough of this foolishness. The whole law of the Old Testament was given so that it would teach us that we cannot earn God's grace. God's grace is a gift. It is not a reward for good people. It is a gift to guilty people who will simply cast themselves upon the mercy of Jesus. Because here's the, here's the truth about this story. This is just fiction. But the real and one and only Good Samaritan was Jesus Christ who saw us in our bankrupt spiritual lost condition. Sin has beaten us down and left us battered. We cannot save ourselves. And while the world sees us and walks on by, he came to us. That's what Christmas is all about. He came to us, came by our side, walked with us, and he served us, and he cared for us, and he rescues us. And he pays the full price for our spiritual healing. And he went to a cross, and he was stripped of everything. And he gave his life's blood so that we could be forgiven. He took our beating. He took our punishment. He was hung up for our hang-ups. He died for us. And he rose from the dead victorious. And all who put their faith in him received the gift of eternal life. And now, now when we do good, it's not so we can earn our salvation. We are not so foolish to think we could ever merit one moment in heaven. We're not that good. No, now when we do good, it is because we are grateful for how Jesus not the Good Samaritan, the great Savior has been good to us. And now we don't do it to earn it. We do it to express our love for God and for other people. And we recognize on our best day, with our best motives, we are still people of failure. We don't love God perfectly. We don't love our fellow men perfectly. But we're saved. And there's a desire in our heart to do better today than we did yesterday. Not to earn salvation, but to express it. In Fort Caroline Baptist Church, that is the reason we do what we do in this church and for each other and in this community and for people around the world. We're not trying to work our way to heaven. 
and pray that by the end of our life, the good of our lives outweigh the bad of our lives. No, Jesus settled the matter when he died for us on the cross. We placed our faith in him. We are forgiven. We're free. We've been given the gift of eternal life. Jesus said in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And now we just live to express that life that he's given to us. And we want to introduce other people to this great Savior. That's why we do what we do. And that's why we're not ashamed to ask you to join us and help us and partner with us and work with us to show the love that we have for God and for our fellow human beings. So if you're a follower of Jesus, be the neighbor your neighbor needs. If you're the follower of Jesus and you really love God and you love others, you will not calculate how your love is extended. You won't just love people who look like you. You won't just only love people who vote like you. You won't only vote or or love people who entered the country like you or your ancestors. You won't just love people whose lifestyles match yours. You won't just love people who treat you lovely. As imperfectly as you and I are going to be as saved sinners this side of heaven, we're going to seek to love God without limits and to love others without limits. We're going to not go around saying, who's my neighbor? Is she my neighbor? I don't think she meets their qualifications. Is he my neighbor? He's borderline. Let me see how he responds to me. No, we don't go around saying, who is my neighbor? We go around saying, I'm going to be the neighbor. My neighbor needs. Now, does this mean that if you don't meet every need of every person that you ever come across, then you're not a follower of Jesus? No, that's not what I'm talking about. There's such a thing as compassion fatigue where you can get overwhelmed with the needs because they're larger and more numerous than you will ever be able to address. You can't do it all. I'm not saying, and Jesus is not saying, it's all on your shoulders to fix every problem and meet every need in the world. But if you see a need and you have the ability to meet that need, then do it. Do for the one what you wish you could do for everyone as Andy Stanley would say. Nor am I saying that every person who makes a claim on your money or your time or your opportunities should be given those things. Some people are con artists. Some people are scammers. Some people are perpetual victims. And by you helping them, you're only enabling them. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is say no. Because you're trying to meet the real need of their life, not just this temporary need. So there's all kinds of conversations we can have about who we help and how we don't. But here's, here's a question you ought to ask yourself. Is there, is there an element in my life where I'm seeking to grow in my love for God and I'm seeking to show my love for others in practical, tangible ways? Am I involved in some compassion ministries trying to meet needs somewhere? And while it's too much for you as an individual, I've been, I've been thinking and dreaming, wow, wouldn't it be awesome? And maybe somebody here is smart enough to figure this out. Wouldn't it be awesome if, if maybe we got a few people convinced that we could do more together than we can individually, and maybe somebody would form an organization and, and, and rally people together on a mission 
wait a minute, that sounds a lot like church. Never mind, Jesus came up with it, never mind. We can do more together than we can individually. And listen, do you agree with this statement? Our world and this community needs this church more now than ever. Does this community need our church less? Do they need the influence of godly Christians less? Do they need the gospel of Jesus less? I don't think so. This community needs this church loving God and loving others more now than ever. And that means it's time for some of you to grow up and make a commitment to the body of Christ. Stop treating it like a movie theater or a concert or a charity that meets your need and come together and say, you know what, because I love God and I love others, I want to grow and I want to help and I want to join with others because we can do more together than we can individually. It's called the body of Christ. It's not a country club. It's the movement of Jesus in this world who went about doing good and he says now to us, go, do likewise. Love God, love others, serve the world. So be the neighbor your neighbor needs. Let this Be Rich campaign give you a tangible way to do that. But if you haven't heard anything else I've said, hear this one last statement. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, then today is the day of salvation. If you think you can work your way to heaven, one day you're going to bust hell wide open. You say, but I go to church and I know Bible verses. As our former pastor used to say, there are going to be enough Baptists in hell to open a Bible college. It's not enough about going to church or knowing the verses. These two, the priest and the Levite, knew the verses that didn't get them to heaven. There's only one way to heaven, and that's placing your faith in Jesus Christ, the one and only good and great Savior. Have you done that today? I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and I'm going to ask you right now, trust Jesus. Talk to him. And if you are going to receive Christ today, I need you to let me know that. I want to celebrate with you. I want to be available to help you or answer your questions or help you take your next step after you've trusted Christ. So if you're in the room, I'm going to be right here at the front at the end of this service. And today, if you've prayed to receive Christ, you come. Go public with your faith. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. If you're online, go to our website, fcbc.life. And there's a Let's Connect card. There's a little checkbox you can click. It says, today I committed my life to Christ. We're not going to bombard you and spam you. We just want to celebrate with you and help you take that next step in your life to get plugged in somewhere, whether it's here or somewhere with a local group of believers following Jesus, loving God, loving others, serving the world. So let's pray together. In the stillness of this moment, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder from Jesus that we all desperately need Jesus. God, we have not loved you perfectly. We haven't in the past. We know we can't in the future. And we haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, we've tried to limit our love. We have drawn a circle around our lives that leaves so many people out of our love. God, forgive us. So if we're trying to work our way to heaven, we are already doomed. But we thank you that we can inherit a gift given to us by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, who said, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God, thank you that we don't have to die in our sin unforgiven. We don't have to die and spend eternity separated from you in hell. We can be forgiven and we can have eternal life now, this very moment. And we can know that even when we die, we step into your presence. So, Father, I pray in the stillness of this moment, if there's someone watching or there's someone listening or there's someone in this room who needs Jesus, they would say to you in their heart right now, Dear God, I admit to you, I'm a sinner. And I believe Jesus is your son. He's the only one who lived a perfect life. He's the only one who loved God perfectly, loved his neighbor perfectly. And he gave his life on the cross for me. He died for my sin. And he rose from the dead on the third day. So today, I turn from my sin and I say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I believe in you. I put my faith in you. I put my trust in you and you alone. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Thank you for the promise of the Bible that says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today I call on your name, Lord. Thank you for your love. I receive it as a gift. Now help me to learn more about you. Help me to live for you. Help me to love you and love my neighbor like you'd have me to. Help me to be the neighbor my neighbor needs. In Jesus' name we all pray and everyone said, amen. I love you. Thank you for being with us today. May the Lord bless you.